0: This is The Visible Hand. My name is Jordi Blanes i Vidal. My guest today is Martin Smaltz, who is a professor of finance and economics at the Saïd Business School, University of Oxford. Today we are going to talk about his paper, Common Ownership Competition and Top Manager Incentives, which is joined with Miguel Anton, Florian Ederer and Mireia Gine. The paper was published at the Journal of Political Economy in 2023. Martin, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Oli.
0: Martin, what is the common ownership hypothesis?
1: The common ownership hypothesis is the idea that when two competitors, so two rivals uh, in the same product market, say, have overlapping sets of owners or in the extreme, the same owners, that then they might not compete just as aggressively as they would as if they had separate owners. That's the idea. So in short, when you have common ownership of rivals, they might not compete as aggressively. That's the hypothesis.
0: Yes, from a broad perspective, the the economic logic uh, there will be that by competing aggressively, that is decreasing prices, I am maybe like managing to steal market share from my competitor, but my competitor is owned by me. So therefore I'm like hurting myself uh, in there indirectly. Would that be the broad idea?
1: Now we are already at the very core of of the whole issue and why that uh, JPE paper exists. So the thought process you just went through is exactly right, except the question is, who's you? So you say, if I compete more aggressively against a rival, then I'm hurting myself. Well, yeah. So that makes sense. If you're a manager who's also the shareholder of your firm, say, right, then, uh, and if you're a shareholder of the other firm as well, then you would be hurting yourself by competing aggressively. But the interesting thing happens when there's a separation between the management and the shareholders. So then we, then we have to be careful about who you mean by I. Who, who is that I that you're referring to? Who's hurting himself by competing aggressively? And that's what the paper is about.
0: So, so let me put this like in a historical perspective uh, in terms of how uh, economists have thought about uh, this type of issue. So, if we went back like a few decades, the earlier industrial organization models would be mm-hmm. ones in which the the a firm is 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 a unit, and that's and right. There is like a single decision maker. Uh, in a firm, uh, and there is no potential for, say, delegation of decisions, you know, or or conflict of incentives uh, within the firm and so on. Uh, But then, as I said a few decades ago, a new new school of thought appeared, a new school of thought that this uh, podcast series is very interested in, which is the arrival of uh, organizational economics, and the notion that you are describing just now, which is that inside firms, there are conflict of interest, there are multiple decision makers, then who is the you who is making these decisions becomes relevant. And, and you are saying, if we look at it from the perspective of the standard IO, then there is no no issue. You know, the common uh, ownership hypothesis makes sense. But from an org econ perspective, we have to be careful and and it may not be clear that this internalization of the externalities that uh, a firm is imposing on the other by decreasing uh, prices and mar- and getting market share is uh, is being internalized is that correct i think that's
1: that's uh, correct uh, i'll just amend it or paraphrase what you said so in the old io models and the arrived io models the assumption is just that you know uh, firms interact and the firm is a monolith that has a manager that acts in the interest of the firm there's also, I guess, implicitly an assumption that all the shareholders only have interest inside that firm, uh, right? So it's just a monolith um, and therefore it has a well-defined objective function of acting in the interest of that firm. And then of course, there's a literature on strategic delegation, right? So the, the Armstrong Vickers type literature that uh, stepped away from that. But anyways, in standard IO theory, there are no agency problems. But the other thing that is not there in standard I.O. theory is shareholder diversification. So the possibility that the shareholders of one firm might be literally the same as the shareholders in uh, the other firm. But that's, of course, totally commonplace in finance. So that's basically the basis of of modern finance, that uh, shareholder diversification is a a core building block um, of those theories. Now, what's different in finance is in finance, we tend to assume a way that firms strategically interact. So, we basically assume away the existence of IO, and IO assumes away the existence of finance. And what this paper does is to bring these two fields together. So, it simultaneously recognizes that firms strategically interact, but also that the shareholder base might overlap or in the extreme be identical. The last thing you mentioned is organizational hierarchies, so that there might not only be a top manager, there might also be mid-level managers who take some of the strategic or some of the pricing decisions, say, um, of the firm. And this paper combines all three perspectives, the I.O., the finance and the organizational econ perspective and uh, we, I, we like to say that it really uses only standard ingredients of each of these fields but all the bells and whistles and um, start to happen once you combine them and bring them together in the same model
0: so let me paraphrase here from the paper mm-hmm. the um, rationale that you propose for the existence of this paper you say that you know yes we have discussed the common ownership hypothesis it is uh, important uh, to know who is the the you there that is uh, making these decisions, or in other words, what are the mechanisms through which that common ownership is supposed to reduce this this incentive to compete aggressively? You know that mm-hmm. uh, that is yeah. part of the of the hypothesis. You know, this last point that you mentioned was the fact that it is not the owners of the firm that take most of the relevant decisions um, determining this competition. Instead, it is the the managers of the firms. That's right. And it's not clear how these incentives of the owners are going to translate into the decision of the managers. So it could be that why this makes sense from, you know, at a broad level perspective, the mechanism is not clear. What is the explanation, you know, broadly speaking, that, that you give in this paper? Right.
1: So that's exactly right. And I, I think we'll we'll spend quite a bit of the time here talking about this. So in this paper, the mechanism we propose is that uh, common owners rationally or optimally do not engage as actively in uh, traditional corporate governance as non-common owners would. So the traditional uh, shareholder's job is to incentivize the manager To exert effort, one would call it in a Holmstrom Milgram type model. Exerting effort reduces the firm's cost. And if the firm's cost goes down, well, then taking product prices as given, that means margins are high and profits are high. So presumably that's good for the firm and therefore good for the shareholders. Okay, so that's the traditional Holmstrom Milgram type thinking. Now, (laughs) there are two important words I just said. One is taking product prices as given. Well, look, that is exactly the thing that the finance literature tends to assume, but that basically assumes away any role for. Uh, for I.O., So what if the prices are not given, but are determined in industry equilibrium? So that's the first deviation from the Holmstrom type agency theory we make. And the second deviation we make is I said, well, that's presumably good for the firm and hence for the shareholders. But that's not obvious at all either, because if the firm's shareholders also have shares in competitors, then a cost reduction in one firm is not necessarily good for the shareholders. And here's why, because if in one firm you have lower costs, that firm is also gonna set lower prices, right? So in industry equilibrium.
0: Sorry, just to be clear, the the managers who are delegated the pricing decision are going to set lower prices
1: okay i agree i agree and let's talk about the, who that is in just a in just a moment and build this up Perfect. i agree okay of course so let's, so let's start with the firm one sets lower prices because it's optimal for the firm say eh? but is that good for the uh, for the shareholders well um it's clearly not good for the competitors right so if one firm sets lower prices that's a negative externality on the other firms Now, who doesn't like that well the common owner of both firm a and firm b right so the point here is there's two deviations from a standard holmstrom milgram type model one is that first we don't take product prices as given but they're determined in industry equilibrium and the second deviation is we recognize that firms might actually be shareholders of multiple firms in the same industry and then the comparative statics um, start to happen Right. So the mechanism we propose, as I said, is, look, the common owners are hurt on the margin by, um, by a high managerial effort in firm A. So look, they're not going to push for that. So they're going to just rationally say not do anything in corporate governance in the extreme or just push, push less aggressively for cost reductions. Because, again, on the margin, that benefits them less than an investor who is not at the same time also an owner of the competition. So the the short answer to your question of what's the mechanism you propose is, the mechanism you propose is they don't do anything. They don't do anything, therefore the firm's cost is high, therefore the prices are high. It's very boring. And, and the reason that's so important is because um, in the, the old common ownership literature, uh, the mechanism that was proposed there is basically uh, what you said at the, at the outset. You're a manager, you think about the welfare of your shareholders and you realize, ah, if I compete aggressively and steal market share from a rival, that doesn't actually benefit my shareholders. Well, that's a very different mechanism because in your thought, press, thought process, The manager actually, you know, thinks about the portfolios of their shareholders, changes the objective of the firm, right? Makes the firm's decisions take into account the effect on other firms' profits. Whereas in the mechanism we propose in that JPE paper, uh, nobody thought about the other firms, Uh, nobody in management anyways. Uh, The manager just thought for himself and got away by being lazy. He just wasn't monitored. So basically, the mechanism is lazy shareholders as opposed to hyper-rational managers. that's a huge distinction uh, that we think matters a lot for um well you know corporate law for antitrust enforcement but really also for all fields in economics that make any sort of assumptions about what the objective of the firm is
0: you have already alluded to many of these elements of the theoretical model that, that you propose but i am going to ask you if you don't mind to go over some of these elements again if you could Relatively briefly, obviously, because um, this, this is not the reading of a paper, but if you could give us like a, a, a feeling for the main elements that the theory has, for instance, a set of multi-product firms they compete against, uh, against each other in several markets, what are the instruments that the shareholders have to compensate, uh, the CEO and so on and so forth, like the, the main ingredients of, of the model.
1: The firms that compete are indeed multi-product firms. So they compete against each other in multiple markets. If you want a concrete example, you can think of airlines, say, right? So there's different types of airlines um, and different combinations of airlines compete in different routes against each other, if you if you like. So that's the firms. Then, well, there are shareholders. The instruments the shareholders have, well, we have a few variations in the model, but as a baseline, the only instrument they have is setting the sensitivity of the management's pay to the performance of the firm. Right? So the firm does better. Which fraction of these additional profits does management take home? Uh, the incentive slope, one would call it in organizational economics. So that's the instrument the shareholders have. That Then there's top managers and there's mid-level managers. The top managers do only one thing the top managers they optimally choose their effort level right and i don't have to explain to the audience of this podcast that this is a metaphor for uh, i don't know how hard they want to fight with the union or which pet projects they want to take it doesn't mean how many hours they work in a day anyway so the top the top management sets effort levels and the effect of that choice is to influence the firm's marginal cost that's the only thing the top management does the top management does not make pricing decisions in the product markets. That is something the mid-level managers do. So the mid-level managers, they um, set, say, pricing decisions, but you can also do it in Kornowee if you like. They set pricing decisions market by market. Now, what are the objectives of each of these agents? Well, the mid-level managers, they act like in a standard IO model. They maximize firm profits market by market. So they take as given what the firm's marginal cost is and what the competitor's marginal cost is and demands and all this good stuff. And then optimally set prices, taking these parameters as given. Top-level management uh, incentives are, you know, they have increasing and concave utility, uh, like in standard organizational econ, and they have convex cost of effort. Again, that's just copy-paste from Holmstrom-Milgram-type models. And the shareholders, well, the shareholders, they want to maximize their portfolio profits, like in standard finance. That's it. Those are the standard ingredients. And once you throw all of them together, uh, you get the results
0: paper. So proposition one says that the incentives given to managers decrease and the marginal costs increase with common ownership. Again, you have already mentioned it, but if you don't mind repeating, what is the intuition for this result?
1: Right. So why does that happen? Um, Right. So let's do it in the same order as we just presented the agents and go backwards this yeah. mid-level pricing manager if uh, if the firm's marginal cost is low this mid-level pricing manager will optimally set low product prices relatively low product prices okay that's a negative externality on the other the rival firms so the result will be greater output, but lower equilibrium product prices. Yeah. Um, that is, if the firm's marginal cost is low. But remember that the firm's marginal cost is a result of top management's effort choices. Right? Or the top manager chooses higher effort, that leads to lower marginal cost. And why would he choose higher effort levels? Well, um, he or she, I should say, why? Why would she? Why would she choose higher effort levels? And the answer is well, because uh, she got steeper, more performance-sensitive top management incentives. Right. And foreseeing all of this, the shareholders sit there and think, well, how much effort are we going to put um, or how many governance costs are we going to pay um, in order to incentivize the manager to cut costs? And foreseeing this chain of events, the shareholders sit there and say, look, if I also own the competition, I will just not work very hard to set steep incentives for the manager. Therefore, the top management incentives are flatter. Therefore, the manager doesn't exert effort. Therefore, the marginal costs are high. Therefore, the mid-level pricing manager sets high prices. Well, has, you it know, takes higher marginal costs given and sets high prices. And oops, that was the result you just mentioned. Higher common ownership means higher marginal costs and higher prices. As if by an invisible hand, one might
0: quip. Um, so we don't like invisible hands in this podcast, though. Exactly, exactly. So look, we only like visible ones. The, the funny thing is uh, the mid-level manager who
1: does a price setting has no idea who the shareholders are. He's never heard of diversification. He actually does act in the interest of the firm, as in the traditional old I.O. models, right? Uh, The top level manager, funnily enough, in this model hasn't heard of his shareholders either, right? He doesn't need to know that. The only thing the top manager knows is what the incentive slope is um, of of her contract and what the parameters are for her cost of effort. That's all she knows, like in any standard uh, organizational econ model, right? So what is not the case, what the model does, does not describe is, say, shareholders going and telling the CEO in which market they want to see higher versus lower prices as a function of their portfolio choices or whatnot. That would be the visible hand theory of common ownership, I suppose. And the one that um, I, I'd say was discussed as the theory uh, to be tested in the literature, but um, the, our, our attempted claim to fame with, this, uh, with the paper we're discussing here is to say, hey, that's not even necessary it's not even necessary that the CEO knows who the shareholders are. Of course, in practice, CEOs know who their shareholders are to like the second digit after the comma um, for, the, for the most important shareholders. But none of that is necessary for these pricing effects uh, to happen. So that is a bit of the point of the paper.
0: So I agree that this is an important advantage of the model. But one thing that, however, this model requires is for the owner to be somewhat involved in the design of the ceo compensation contract now in practice many of these common owners are like passive investment funds that do not take like a strong stand in any way maybe they don't even vote at all you know on their like a um, investor meeting uh, that takes place every year so do you think that th- you know that that remaining link that you need that remaining uh, uh, you know anticipation of how the decisions are going to impact further down that that hierarchy is is plausible in this in this setting
1: yeah so you're pointing. i'm very glad you're asking that question so in the model the shareholders act as if they anticipated all this chain of mechanics inside the firm and so forth and hence rationally chose their effort levels and this parameter of wealth performance sensitivities uh, but of course, in practice, there is a board that has a compensation committee and they use compensation consultants and all this good stuff. And um, so that's not literally um, how that happens um, in practice. Um, I, I'll talk in just a second about how we think about this in, in practice. But for the moment, I just want to clarify this is an as if argument. Nobody should take that literally. And, and we certainly um, don't. Now, you mentioned passive investors. And I think here at first we have to clarify what we mean by that. So the word, the the label passive um, has two meanings, but we only have one one label for it. Um, One notion of passive investor in finance is someone who just holds the market portfolio. They just hold a value weighted uh, portfolio of all the assets they can find on the planet, right? So uh, Markowitz, uh, Sharp Lindner type uh, portfolio theory. That's the meaning of passive investing in finance. That should not be confused with a passive approach to corporate governance. And the uh, stereotypical uh, passive investors like Vanguard or BlackRock that set up uh, the index funds that you and I hopefully all hold in our portfolios, um, those funds do vote their shares. Uh, So to confuse these two, uh, the approach to investing with the approach to governance, that would be a grave error. And in the words of Vanguard CEO, nothing could be further from the truth. Okay, so we have to just be very mindful that there's a distinction between passive investing and being passive in governance. They do vote their shares. They are not passive in that sense. Now, that said, they are clearly a lot less active in corporate governance than, say, an activist hedge fund. And let's think about, or, or as say Elon Musk at Twitter, all right. So let's let's think about exactly that distinction in in just a second. So um so, so before I get to that, I wanted to say is uh, compensation and the structure of compensation is as per these passive investors the one top topic that they talk about with management. So this is what they say they engage about engage with with management uh, quite a lot okay so this is in terms of distinctions but now here comes the the subtle uh, nuance that we're trying to make in the paper the our point is that of course blackrock and vanguard engage in uh, the design of the o compensation but clearly not to the same extent as an activist hedge fund or elon musk would do and our point is that this is exactly an endogenous outcome of the model They choose how much resources are we going to put into reforming the governance of this firm with the, uh, you know, with the aim of cutting the firm's cost compared to a non-common owner, call him Elon Musk, right? Elon Musk buys Twitter, uh, changes the capital structure and decides to fire what, I don't know, two thirds of the employees. Is that what he did? This is not the same approach to governance as Vanguard runs. And our point is like, yeah, that's natural because Elon Musk. Does not hurt, or he does hurt the competition, whatever the competition of Twitter is, by cutting the costs at Twitter. But he doesn't care about hurting the competition because he doesn't own the competition, all right? So our point is that the fact that the so-called passive investors have such a more, more passive approach to corporate governance than other owners or other asset managers that only have one firm per industry in the portfolio, that is exactly an endogenous outcome of these common ownership considerations.
0: So let me somewhat refresh uh, what you said, and then uh, propose a necessary condition that is required for your statement to be true. And, and, and you can tell me whether you agree that this is a necessary condition or not. Okay. So you are saying, see, this is... Uh, Passive, under the second definition of what passive is, uh, investors Mm -hmm. uh, that are like Vanguard, you know, the the big investment funds of BlackRock, they do engage in the uh, design of the compensation, but they engage less than uh, other type of investor would. And uh, this is precisely the result of that common ownership that our model is highlighting. Okay. So their lower Mm -hmm. level of engagement is is precisely what our model is predicting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it seems to me that you are there uh, creating an equivalence or, or at least a strong relation between engagement and the, the, the slope of the performance pay compensation uh, for the CEO. That is, lower engagement is going to translate into, into flatter uh, performance pay contracts and higher engagement is going to translate into steeper performance pay contracts. Or in other words, that the default is having a fixed wage and the non-default, the, the thing that requires involvement is having... And I don't know, like, I will agree that in the early 90s, the default was that the CEOs were living the quiet life, you know, with a, you know, very high wages and, and a, no, no reward or penalty for, for high low performance. I don't know that that this is the default anymore in today's environment. It could be that the default is... We are going to hire some external consulting company that is going to bring an off-the-shelf, you know, contract with a with a very high slope. And if we want to intervene, the intervention is going to be to say no. Actually, our circumstances require a different type of setup. You know, like not clear that this equivalence is uh, as perfect as what seemed to be implicit in your in your statement earlier
1: so so what i agree with is that i made that equivalence kind of like in a bit of a sloppy way and say look uh, you know, the strength of engagement is kind of like the same thing as setting incentive slopes. We are much more precise on that in model variations in the appendix, where instead of assuming that the shareholders, so to speak, directly set these incentive slopes, they just decide whether or not to pay a governance cost, right? So basically whether to engage in governance at all or basically outsource that. So there's very, we are being much more precise about this and show that there actually is an equivalence between these different ways of of uh, thinking about the the problem but you're right that you know i didn't explain that uh, explain that earlier what i do want to say is that how, how one should imagine i think uh, this in practice right so i i don't want to make a statement about whether incentive slopes are steeper or flatter compared to the 1990s um because that depends a bit on how you measure stuff but what i do want to describe is actual cases that are happening and our noses these days and that involves things like a uh, a firm, I wrote a case study on this uh, with in the case of DuPont. There's a CEO uh, that has some in- incentive contract, but she uh, sold shares before the vesting period had ended, right? But the existing shareholders, the Vanguard, BlackRock, State Streeters of this world, basically just let that happen because they're not paying attention. They're not paying the governance costs, so to speak, right? An activist hedge fund comes in and says, hey, this cannot be, we need steeper incentives for top management, right? And the question is uh, what happens when that hedge fund tries to start a proxy fight and whether that hedge fund will receive the support of the big passive investors, the BlackRock Wing or in state streets. And the answer is no. So in this case, the activist hedge fund, which said like textbook finance, optimal governance things, got voted out of the door by the uh, big asset managers, which had the effect of lowering DuPont's firm value, but increasing the competitor's firm value. Okay, so this is just uh, an actual mechanism how that happens at the shareholder level. When you think about it at the manager level, you know, you imagine there's a boardroom full of not particularly super duper engaged, aggressive uh, board members. The CEO comes in and says, look, I have increasing and concave utility. I would like high and not performance sensitive pay, right? That makes sense. Well, if you have shareholders that are asleep at the wheel, they'll say, well, I guess that's fine. And if you have Elon Musk in the boardroom, then the answer is no, this is not fine. And uh, you shall have uh, low and extremely performance sensitive pay, right? So the the point is in some ways exactly that if the default is that uh, there's a management-friendly contract being rolled out, the question is whether the shareholders protest against that or not. And now you can, I, I hope you can see that. This equivalence between you know, paying the governance cost or how engaged are you as an owner actually is closely linked also to uh, how performance sensitive a management contract uh, will be the outcome of that of that mechanism.
0: So you have one uh, prediction that is unique to your model, which is that commoner's common ownership leads to uh, weaker manager incentives. But you yeah. have also like a number of predictions that also come from this model. They are not directly tested in this paper because the empirical evidence about them has already appeared uh, in previous papers. Therefore, one way uh, to think about this paper is that it helps to, I mean, in addition to providing a, uh, an extra uh, prediction and test, it also reconciles a variety of bits of evidence that have appeared in the literature. If, if you could uh, quickly tell us what these predictions are and And what the evidence has found out, uh, at least with some of them?
1: So the literature has produced mixed evidence on uh, the relationship between common ownership and margins or firm profits. Earlier evidence, so that is by, um, in this Journal of Finance paper with Jose Azar and Isabel Teco the anti-competitive effects of common ownership, which kind of triggered this, this whole literature. So in that paper, we show that common ownership, or we claim to show evidence that common ownership likely causes higher product prices. And the point of this model here is to say, like, look, uh, a higher a relationship between higher product prices and common ownership is not inconsistent with no relationship between common ownership and margins, Again, the reason being, if prices are higher because marginal costs are higher, then of course you'll see an effect on product prices, but not on margins. So that is, I think, the most important part where the previous empirical results get reconciled with this with this model. Now, what the model also produces here is a prediction on quantities. So in the airlines paper, we show that um, common ownership uh, in in the panel, anyways, negatively relates to output. So the number of passenger seats, uh, the, the the number of passengers transported by the respective airlines in the respective market okay otherwise you might think that the higher prices just come from higher demand as opposed to you know lessened uh, supply so quantities predictions also come out of this model but then there's other stuff And now i think we have to get to the to the market level predictions here so um um, i owe a great debt of gratitude to larry summers who made fun um, of an early version of this paper at an at a dinner speech and said look sure i can kind of see how you can give top management a anti-competitive signal through their pay package. But how is that going to produce um, variation across the you know, U.S. airline markets in how common ownership relates to product prices in these markets, For so that the manager would have to understand the pricing in the particular markets, yada yada. And Our point in this paper is like, no, actually, the manager does not understand that. And we previously went through the mechanics of how that's really the mid-level managers who are doing that and so forth. But now I need to explain how the model actually makes these market level predictions. Okay, So here I'm going to have to take a deep breath and I guess the listeners too. So the idea is as follows. Say you have Delta and United Airlines and for illustration purposes, assume they have literally the same shareholders. It's all BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street and a bit of Warren Buffett perhaps holding identical stakes in all of them. So they're commonly owned, so they have lazy managers, so their costs are high. So in markets where Delta and United compete, product prices will be really high, all right? That's high common ownership, high costs, and therefore high prices. Now imagine a different market. In a different market, there's Delta Airlines and, say, Virgin America competing.
0: To be clear, sorry, a different market here, you mean a different route?
1: That's right. Right, exactly. So different market, different route. So say, you know, in New York, San Francisco, there's only Delta and United flying, but from New York to Boston, you also have Virgin America and Delta Say. Mm-hmm. Obviously, this is for simplification here. Now, Virgin America, say, is mostly uh controlled by Richard Branson and his friends. And Richard Branson and friends do not hold significant stakes in Delta Airlines. Okay. So what does that mean? Well, that means there's no common ownership in the market where United, where Delta competes against Virgin America, right? And Virgin America is endogenously going to be a low-cost carrier. How so? Look, it doesn't have a common owner. Richard Branson doesn't care about the negative externality that Virgin America imposes on Delta. So Richard Branson will push... Uh, The CEO of Virgin to work hard, cut costs, expand your routes and all this good stuff, buy new airlines, offer great service, and all this good stuff, and offer really cheap prices on that New York-Boston route. Okay, and what do you have? Oh, look, if Virgin America offers low prices on that route, of course, Delta is forced to offer low prices as well. So what do you have? You have low prices in the route in which you have low common ownership. There's low common ownership between Virgin Virgin America and Delta. And you have high prices and low output by the way in the route where delta united compete that's a high common ownership market right so it's 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 funny isn't it that nobody was thinking about route level stuff except these pricing managers that maximize the firm's own value but it is still true that you get a market level correlation between common ownership and higher uh, product prices all right the other thing you get and that is going to be the actual answer to your question of what is which evidence are we reconciling is is the following um, what we show is that at the market level, there's actually a, that common ownership negatively correlates with HHI, the uh, normal measure of market concentration, the Hirfnal index, the, the hirschman um index of market concentration. Now, why is that true? Look, in the Delta and United route, right, Delta and United, they're symmetric. So each of them is going to have 50% market share. That gives an HHI of 5,000 or so, or 0. 0.5, depending on which scale you want to have that on. But on that New York-Boston route, uh, Virgin America sets much lower prices than Delta. So what you're going to get is that Virgin has a much higher market share than Delta. So the HHI is actually high. It's higher than 5,000 or 0.5 in that market. Wait, and that's a market with low common ownership. So see, we just generated a negative relationship between common ownership and HHI. All right. So this was a long answer. Let's all remind ourselves of the question. Was. The question was, which evidence from the previous literature does this model reconcile? And it's like a long list of stuff. It is that there's higher, there's a correlation between common ownership and higher product prices, uh, but not necessarily between common ownership and higher margins or higher profits. Um, there's a negative a correlation between common ownership and an output There's a negative correlation between common ownership and market concentration, It's like all kinds of stuff that literature has has churned out happens to be a prediction uh, of that model, you know, kind of like by accident. It's not like we constructed that model to produce that evidence. So that made us feel, I guess, believe a bit more that there's some truth, uh, a kernel of truth hidden in what we model there.
0: So let's now move to the uh, more empirical part of the paper where you directly test Uh, the one prediction that we mentioned earlier has not been tested in previous work in this area this is the prediction that common ownership leads to weaker managing incentives could you start by describing how you measure the strength of the incentives and how you measure a common ownership in practice
1: yeah so that's a very important question too so in this final version of the paper, uh, we uh, became convinced by talking to the experts in the you know CEO pay literature um, that what we should pay, what we, what we should measure is not the pay performance sensitivity of a CEO's annual pay to the annual performance, but instead the wealth performance sensitivity of the CEO's wealth compared to the firm's uh, performance. So what's the difference? Look, if you take the annual pay of the CEO and correlate that with pay, you know, you can calculate that. And much of the literature of the you know older literature has done that. The trouble with that is, suppose the CEO has worked at that firm for 10 years and has all these invested stock and option grants, which constitute a huge part of the CEO's wealth. Then really economically, what is much more important for the CEO is how that package and stock of wealth um how that correlates with firm performance as opposed to the annual paid package okay so that's the rationale for using this this ready-made liter- measure from the literature so that comes from um a paper by um Edmunds Landier and uh, Gabex so that's basically an off-the-shelf standard measure um of the strength of CO incentives
0: Let let me, however, interrupt you here and uh, point out that if this sensitivity is, as you describe it, largely predetermined in that it is the result of the inheritance of the previous tenure of the CEO at the firm and the stock options and shares that the CEO has accumulated over a long time, then at least that, that predetermined part is going to be less the result of whatever decisions are being taken this year, following common ownership, right? Like you know, as as an empirical measure, it makes sense, but but that makes the the link to your theory a little bit weaker.
1: Uh, I think that's mostly I think that's mostly fair as a as a critique or comment. We spent quite a lot of time uh, digging into this. So the first thing I thought is there there must certainly not be much variation in this measure than over time, given you know there's such a predetermined component. But that turns out to be wrong. Mm-hmm. So one reason there is quite a bit of variation is because at some point these stocks and option grants vest, uh, right? And if they vest in bulk, then actually the the sensitivity from one year to the next can change quite uh, dramatically. So uh, there is actually more variation than, uh, than I previously uh, thought. The second thing is that in the panel regressions, I mean, we run them at the annual level, but the identifying variation still also comes from longer term changes uh, over time. So one should indeed not think of that as the shareholders in one year completely changing things from one to the next. This is what we identify. Uh, But yeah, so uh, that being a bit of a slow moving variable, you would expect there to be a lesson to link, which might make it harder to find a predicted uh, result. But uh, so there's lots of detail in the paper and a lot more on our computers. To, to dig into that uh, into that point, so that's a that's a good and I think a fair point.
0: And the measure of con- common ownership.
1: The measure of common ownership is is uh, one that captures the following idea. So what we want to capture is the extent to which the most influential shareholders in one firm also have financial interests in the rivals okay so let me say that again we want to know to which extent the let's not call them controlling but the most influential shareholders in one firm have financial interests in the rivals and the way we measure that is by a measure called called you know some people call it kappa others call it lambda anyways it's some people call them profit weights but what it computes is, it goes and says, let's go, let's r- let's write a list of shareholders, by uh, ordered by the fraction of control rights they hold in the company. All right, so I have, I don't know, Warren Buffett holds fifteen percent of the control rights, uh, BlackRock holds eleven, Vanguard holds ten, and so forth. Okay, now let's assume that the shareholder with the highest uh, fraction of control rights also exerts the voice control and use that as a weight on that shareholder's portfolio preferences. We say, okay, Warren Buffett has 15% weight in in his measure. Let's multiply that with whatever Warren Buffett's portfolio profits and portfolio interests are. And we say, well, Warren Buffett holds 15% in Southwest Airlines as well, but only 11% in Delta and 0% in the JetBlue, right? So then the calculation is, 15%, that's Warren Buffett's control right, multiplied by their interests in Rival 1, Rival 2, and Rival 3. And that's where a bunch of variation comes. And once we're done with Warren Buffett, we go to the next largest shareholder, that's Vanguard. Multiply with their portfolio interests and and so forth. Um, And then you know that is compared. This extent to which the largest shareholders hold shares in rivals, you compare that to how much do they hold in the firm in question. You know how much do they hold in the rival compared to the to the target firm for which you calculate that measure. So that ends up giving you a directional. Measure of common ownership at the firm pair um, level, which then, you know, enables you to use um, also asymmetries. Uh, You know, you might have that uh, Richard Branson controls a chunk of Virgin America and does not have stakes in Delta. But actually, the folks that influence Delta might have stakes in Virgin America. So you could have these asymmetries and that does feature in these kappa measures um, that we use.
0: So with this, you have two types of empirical strategies. Uh, Mm -hmm. The first one is like, a, I mean, your your data set is a a panel data set of firms and years. Um, Typically, you're going to put, obviously, like controls for firm fixed effects, um, maybe uh, other controls, year fixed effects, maybe industry year fixed effects. But Mm -hmm. you have two empirical strategies. One of them is a panel regression. The other one is the difference in differences um, design. Just con- you know, concentrating first uh, on the panel regression, obviously you study what happens to the wealth performance sensitivity when this measure of, com- of common ownership uh, change. Broadly speaking, what do you find there?
1: So what we find is a negative correlation between common ownership and wealth performance sensitivity. Let me quickly try to put that in English. So in in firms whose most influential shareholders have large financial stakes in rivals. In these firms, top management has less performance sensitive pay. So that's a negative correlation between wealth performance sensitivity and this measure of common ownership we use. Now, this is true controlling for a bunch of stuff that the literature says uh, predicts wealth performance sensitivity. It controls for, of course, year fixed effects and industry fixed effects and industry times year fixed effects. If you're if you want to. So what does all of that mean? Well, it means that the identifying variation really comes from changes over time in one firm compared to the other firms in the industry in the level of common ownership. So in the extent to which the most influential shareholders hold financial interests and rivals. And that variation is correlated with the changes in wealth performance sensitivity. Okay. So look, that, I guess, difference is out uh, a few uh, uh, endogeneity concerns, such as that perhaps the ownership structure of firms um, responds to like expected decreases in competition, uh, which also correlate with the managers having a quiet life and not being monitored perfectly or whatnot. Right. So that's a reverse causality. Uh, that's a reverse causality concern, and that one is not in doubt. What is in doubt is just uh, that we might be identifying of uh, and, uh, endogenous differences across industries and time trends in these levels uh, that have, uh, you know, other reasons that that are not being modeled. But the panel regressions do leave that endogenous that uh, reverse causality concern um, open. So that's what we need an identification strategy for. So another thing I want to mention about what we find in these panel regressions is that it really, really, really matters. Um, to include blockholders and insiders holdings um, into the measure of ownership, right? If you calculate how much common ownership there is between Facebook and Google... It really matters to capture the control and ownership of Mark Zuckerberg and uh, Larry Pageant and Sergey Brin. So if you only calculate the level of common ownership by financial institutions using 13F data, you're going to miss that variation. And what we find in these panel regressions is indeed that once you include um, blockholders, the coefficients and the regressions go up by a factor of two approximately. So we know that this is a quantitatively important uh, way of improving the measurement um, of ownership. And the good news is that nobody has to put these data sets together anymore. And we created a website called uh, corporateownershipdata.com, or you can also just go to ownershipproject.com and you will be redirected. And everybody can download for free these ownership statistics um, that are directly scraped from the SEC website.
0: So let let me be a bit more precise about this reverse causality concern, because this is something Mm -hmm. that I was wondering uh, as well. So so I guess that, you know, I mean, for me, at least a helpful way to think about this is a bit in terms of the distinction between exit and voice. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, while a common ownership may want to use, a common owner may want to use its voice to... Uh, influence or not influence incentives. Uh, It may be even easier for an owner, especially a passive owner, to buy or sell shares of a company uh, in terms of targeting what companies are also in industries to which that passive owner uh, has shares that already have perhaps weaker incentives for whatever reason, right? That may be easier than trying to get involved in changing or not changing the incentive structure. Right. That, that is the, the formula that, that the concern I, I would... I think take. that's totally right. I think that's totally right, yeah. Okay, so you have a, for this like a difference in difference design that you use as an additional persuasive method uh, in support of, of your prediction. How does that work?
1: So the difference in, in differences design plays with additions to a, the S&P 500 index of competitors of the target firm again uh, to illustrate and using airlines because we've used that a bunch now say um delta airlines is already in the s p 500 let's call it an index incumbent but then um, united airlines is being added to the index okay so what happens when united airlines gets added to the index well the usual index trackers uh, that offer s p 500 indexes uh, are basically more or less forced to hold the stock so that they can minimize their tracking error okay So what we know is there's gonna be some shareholders that used to own United that sell their shares to the index trackers, okay? Um, And then the index trackers hold more of United. So United's ownership structure changes. Of course, Delta's ownership structure doesn't change, right? I mean, Delta didn't get added to the index. So there's no reason why it would change other than for random reasons or for time trends. But what does change is the extent to which Delta's largest shareholders own stakes in competitors. Delta's ownership structure has not changed, but Delta's common ownership has changed, all right? So, mechanically, we're controlling forever, you know, for whatever other. Uh, favorite measure of uh, ownership statistic you might have because it literally hasn't changed, all right? So that's a shock to common ownership without being a shock to ownership. What we observe is that after such index additions of competitors, the index incumbents, wealth performance sensitivity goes down, okay? And that, you know, obviously rejects uh, some of these endogenetic uh, stories or the reverse causality stories we might have had in mind, but look, it's an empirical paper. So one can c- tell complicated other stories that will would still be consistent with that result, but it just makes it more likely, I would think, that uh, there might actually be a causal effect of common ownership on wealth performance sensitivity.
0: Let me provide an alternative interpretation and you tell me whether it is plausible or not, and whether it is too complicated or not. So one thing that I'm wondering in the type of description uh, that you gave is that um, the exclusion restriction is that the only way in which the entrance of a firm in the SP500 is affecting its competitors is by increasing the common ownership of its competitors. But imagine that the entry of a firm in the SP500 it changing the way that that firm competes in the industry, okay? For instance, the arrival of these passive investors, et cetera, et cetera, might have effects on the behavior of the managers of these new entrants and through the product market, you know, that may have effects on the existing incumbent, comp- incumbent in the SP500 competitors, In fact, this type of relationship are relations that are intrinsic to your model, right? In your model, the way that you price depends on the way that your uh, competitors price and so on, right? So... That would be, you know, a channel through its exclusion restriction that you are implicitly assuming there, you know, may, may not hold any other channel, you know.
1: I think I agree with the, the story you started to tell. I think it's not yet complete because we still have to spell out a reason why these changes uh, in how United competes with the rivals somehow affect the wealth performance sensitivity of Delta. Right. So let me, let me reaffirm what he I say. So United Airlines gets added to the S&P 500, and that makes, I don't know, more analysts cover the stock or so, and that reduces United's cost of capital, and that makes it compete differently with Delta. And wait, but now we have to somehow explain and why does this now change the optimal level of wealth performance sensitivity? But, you know, there could be some way, let's say. So at the abstract level, I agree with you, like, and then for some reason, that changes the wealth performance sensitivity of Delta. And I think that's right. That's a fine story. That's a fine critique. And I guess now we're where I think, you know, all honest empirical papers end up with you, you tell, you just have to tell a kind of like a complicated story that's kind of like vague and not exactly spelled out. Um, and then I guess people will make up their mind of whether they think this complicated story is more likely or, you know, the more straightforward one. But le- let me tell you one um, that I think just is a question of interpretation that's dear to my heart. Right. So what I said previously is that when this united again, we're us- using this as examples, obviously, when United gets added to the index, then some investors sell their stock so that the index trackers can buy them, right? I mean, look, there's only so many stocks outstanding, so somebody has to sell. Then, you know, how do I know that I'm identifying um, a change in common ownership as opposed to, you know, the effect of the absence of a undiversified blockholder in that other firm, for example, right? And I think this is just a thing that is endemic to this entire literature, that because there's only 100% common stock outstanding, when I say there's more common ownership, that's the same thing as saying there's less of some other form of ownership. You know, and common ownership, you should really think of as an equivalent of saying the absence of a large blockholder that does not at the same time hold shares in the competitor. But, you know, that doesn't roll off the tongue very easily. So I guess the common ownership is a shorthand for that. But I think it's important for me to point this out because, because otherwise people are naturally tempted to think about what are these common owners doing in order to cause less competition? And then I say, ha ha, the answer is nothing. <laughs> but that's just another way of saying non-common blockholders do something to strengthen competition. So that's my Elon Musk example. Elon Musk comes into a firm and you know, aggressively, uh, aggressively cuts cost. Well, that does not happen uh, when Vanguard comes into a firm or when Elon Musk sells a firm or an activist sells a firm. So I just want us to all remain aware of that, that that this literature is about common ownership. It is not about the behavior of common owners because that tends to be extremely boring as far as I can tell.
0: Yeah, wonderful. Thank you, Martin, for coming to the podcast. Thank you very
1: much for having me. This was fun.
0: Please visit our website, thevisiblehand.uk. Introductory music and logo by Etanes Blanesiso. Episode produced by Anderson Tan.